Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 2000 film Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great. Uh, Barrett, uh, you re- recommended this film to tie into the uh, the Oscars this year with Michelle Yeoh, um, who didn't get nominated for this film, which I don't understand because um, uh, this film had 10 nominations, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's she's uh, nominated this year for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Um, so I'm excited to talk about this movie. This was a thrill to get to see again. What is your history with this film? Were you uh, in on Crouching Tiger early on? Yeah, I was. And I should also say the other tie-in is the film has been re-released in a 4K restoration. So that's if people have not seen it on the big screen, uh, now is the time to do it. Uh, yeah, I certainly saw it in the theater when it came out. Um, you know, what I, what I can't remember, and I loved it at the time, but what, what I can't remember is why, because uh, anticipating a question you might be getting ready to ask later, it's not a genre that I am particularly fond of i haven't seen a lot of films in this genre i suspect that the reason i went to see it primarily was because um i really liked ang lee and i still do i had seen most of his films that came before crouching tiger so i think that was probably a big reason that i that i was in for it as well plus you know the reviews made it clear that it wasn't kind of a typical film in the genre it's a little bit different and that's obviously something to talk about yeah, I'm, I actually know. I know exactly why I went to see this movie. I I even know what was told to me that led me to to see this movie. So this was uh, in 2000. I was in graduate school. I was not yet married, um, and my my future wife saw this movie first. And her her one sentence review was, "It's like watching Star Wars if you've never seen Star Wars before." <laughs> And I was like, that's all I needed to hear. And I'm like, that sounds like the greatest thing ever because, you know, we talked about this with Pulp Fiction, how how sometimes movie watching is chasing a feeling of like, do you remember how you felt when you mm-hmm. saw this? And it's like, I, it's not that I want to see that movie again. I want to have that experience again. Uh, very often when we pick films to watch, my wife and I will say like, I want something that feels like when we watched X, which mm. is hard to do when it's a transcendent experience. Um, <laughs> so when she said that, I was like, okay, that I'm, I'm definitely, I have to see this. Um, so I, I saw, saw this at the Heights Theater, um, which mm. is the first movie I ever saw there. And I distinctly remember my reaction. I had a physical reaction to this movie, which is when um, when the first fight scene starts, and even before they start, you know, running across the the rooftops, you just sort of notice the physics is a little different, and they're mm-hmm. floating a little bit more. And then when they take off across the rooftops, I had to hold on to um, the the armrests of my seat, not because I was like you know like like clenching them but because i had to keep myself from standing up i just was it's like i needed to be closer to the screen i was so it's the maybe the most excited i've ever been by something happening on the screen uh that that it was it was like a involuntary reaction of like well we all have to stand for this right like this is this is that <laughs> special so um so this movie has a very special place in my heart uh because of that <laughs> Um, so you mentioned, you know, this is not a genre that you are uh, particularly a fan of. I mean, do you have much history at all with Wuxia uh, stories or films, with martial arts films? Did you have anything going into this? Not really. 
Uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, since then, yeah, you know, I've seen a few more. Um, but really, going into this, I don't think. I mean, I was aware of the existence of the, of the genre. Um, oh, and by the way, I I did a little uh, Chinese tutorial this morning. Uh, so uh, it's it's Usha. Usha. Really? Okay. Yeah. I was I was or, wondering or, 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 about actually, that. Actually, actually, if you're really going for the genuine pronunciation, something more like Usha. Anyway. Um, okay. Yeah, that's about all I'm going to attempt right now, Sam. Uh, no, really, I, I don't think, you know, except for, except for knowing about people like Jackie Chan, you know, who, who made who made the crossover uh, and did some of his martial arts stuff in his American films. I really didn't didn't know much about it. Yeah, I remember knowing nothing about it. And I did have this feeling of I walked out of this movie and loved it so much. But I was a little nervous because I, I didn't know anything about Ang Lee. I didn't know anything about uh about martial arts films at all and i was a little nervous as like is this the kind of movie that if you're a real fan of this you would sort of be offended by i didn't i mean i just had no context for it so i went i had a friend who worked at the bethel library mj who is a big martial arts fan i remember going to him and saying have you seen this movie and he said yes and i was like you know when they start to fly around like is that okay in these movies or is or is this them trying to like add something and then he explained to me sort of the history of this and i realized that this was actually situated in a tradition whereas he's like yes like these great masters would be able to achieve these things where they could do what seems to be impossible because i was wondering because when you brought up someone like jackie chan you know part of the like magic of of people like that is that they can they actually are doing the things that we're looking at Mm -hmm. so i was wondering like well if they start to fly obviously that's wire work or something like that does does that like does that cross a line and and i was i was um heartened to hear that that's actually like no no that's part of these stories is like that that these like these great masters actually cross over and and have this ability to sort of transcend the physics of the world yeah, you've actually touched on a really significant aspect of this film, Sam, and that is the degree to which it is um uh it follows the conventions of the genre and the degree to which it kind of challenges the conventions of, of the genre. Uh and there is, you know, there is a there there was a group of kind of ardent fans of the genre who felt that compared to a typical film uh, of this type, there were relatively few fights, and <laughs> there's a famous review where somebody says, "Like listening to your grandmother tell a story." So, 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 so but on the other hand, Ang Lee grew up with both the novels in Usha uh, genre as well as the films, and it's in a way, it's kind of his homage to that genre. It's kind of a way of for him, kind of reclaiming his cultural identity as as a Chinese, but at the same time, trying to um, Trying, trying to play with the genre and bring out some elements in the genre that that really haven't been as emphasized, although they've been there. So it's kind of the way in which he's trying to marry the action with the romance. And one of the most interesting uh, comments on the film that I saw was somebody who said that the the kind of solution he found is based on what what filmmakers in Hollywood uh, came upon with the musical. When they figured out how to incorporate musical numbers into the action. So it wasn't just people are going to stop and sing, but the singing is actually contributing to their characterization. 
uh, and Showboat by Jerome Kern in 1928 is seen as the breakthrough for this. And think about you know, what we've watched in the past, like Singing in the Rain. I mean, those musical numbers contribute to the relationships and the characterizations. So each of the four major fights or fight sequences in this film actually are there not just because they're going to say, oh, let's stop and fight. But those fights be, be, be create relationships or develop relationships or in some ways advance the plot. And I think that's, as I understand it, that's sort of Ang Lee's contribution to the genre in, in a way. I, I love that because that and, and and thinking about musicals is a is a it's actually a really helpful way to think about this because if you had asked me do I like action movies or you know movies with big kind of action set pieces I usually get bored during those things mm-hmm. because they feel obligatory I mean this is this is particularly true of uh you know Marvel movies and things like this it's like it's like they they're writing up to okay now these two people have to punch each other for a while mm-hmm. and then it's like mm-hmm. let's get past that. But here there are major, major plot elements that are mm-hmm. revealed and character character elements. I mean, I think my my favorite of these, and we'll talk about this, is the first time that uh, Lee Mubai and Jen fight, mm-hmm. and he realizes, and Jade Fox realizes, you are not Jade Fox's disciple because you know how to do things that you shouldn't be able to know how to do if she was the person who taught you. Yeah. And that takes a while. I mean, if you're the first time you see it, it takes a while to kind of suss out like, oh, what is happening? And how has that relationship that I thought was one thing actually mm-hmm. been revealed to be something else? And that comes through that comes through the action of like, like, like it needs to be revealed through the action. Um, and so you watch those a little bit. Different. Plus, they also seem like characters um this is a this is a a movie a lot about sort of repressed emotions and it's like in fighting is where some of these emotions can show themselves in ways that they can't uh you know with with two people talking to each other you know especially i feel like um like uh shulin and and uh limu bai when they're talking with each other but even when they're talking with other people it's like they have they have adopted this way of life where they can only sort of speak cryptically and obliquely about things instead of like just saying the thing and uh but in fighting is the one time where that those barriers almost melt away for them yeah and and i think probably the scene in which that is most evident is um the fantastic encounter between shu lin and jen you know when they're just facing off in that in that courtyard and they've just had this exchange about, you know, you're my sister and all this. And then they and then they have this incredible fight. And, you know, one of the one of the critics I read said, you yeah, know, the problem is that I don't see how there's a motivation for this fight because and I'm like, no, that's not the way it works. They actually deep down have this very complicated relationship and they're trying to kind of paper it over by saying these nice things to each other which actually doesn't at all get at the root of the tension between their 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 in their relationship and that is what comes out in the fight so it's not so the the fight is ironically i think if it's ironic that it's more it's actually more expressive than any conversation and i think that's exactly the way the fights work here right the fights are what's expressive like think about Think about that great bamboo scene, right? The the fighting in the bamboo trees and how expressive that is about the complication of of um, Limu's feelings for Jen. You know, and what he says about her versus eh, there's something else going on here, and that fight becomes is it's it's 
it's a ballet, right? And it's it's very sensual. And there's so much being expressed through that that they w- can never actually say to each other. Absolutely. I want to talk about Ang Lee a little bit um, because uh, he is a very interesting filmmaker if you look at his filmography. Mm-hmm. So his his first four English language films, so he made a few films um, in, in Chinese, uh, but his first four English language films, his first three, I should say, do not lead you to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So his big breakthrough is a, the Jane Austen adaptation of Sense and Sensibility, which if you think about Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon actually kind of makes sense. Yes. I mean, there's so much of this that is about like, what if we took those kinds of like social conventions and um, and people dealing with emotions and love that are you allowed to feel or not allowed to feel, but then let's throw it into this other world. Uh, then he makes the ice storm, which is also about complicated adult relationships and adult emotions. Um, and then uh, a civil war film called ride with the devil that I'm not as familiar with. And then he makes this, um, he seems to be very interested in pushing the boundaries of filming I if, if he famously wins two best director oscars for um uh for brokeback mountain and life of pi uh but it's funny because brokeback is his follow-up to hulk right mm-hmm. like so like like he seems like he sort of makes a lot of different kinds of things what are your thoughts on angley as a as a filmmaker First of all, I just have to back up for a minute and say, Sam, I think that you're exactly right that, in fact, so I think it was Ang Lee himself calls this film Sense and Sensibility with Martial Arts um, because it because Sense and Sensibility and, and to a certain extent Brokeback Mountain are, are about characters who are trying to deal with the constraints of society versus being able to express themselves. And that's that's a really clear tension here in in, in this uh, film as well. Um, I, I should say that with Ang Lee, I actually started with one of his Chinese films. I started with uh, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, which is a wonderful film. Um, and then the one before that, I think I saw, I can't remember, it's called The Wedding, the Wedding Banquet. I, I, I think of Ang Lee as somebody, first of all, as I said earlier, he makes this film in a way to kind of affirm his Chinese identity. And there's a there's a real tension here because he grew up in Taiwan. And this is a film which people speak Mandarin. This is based on, 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 on a Mandarin cultural uh, artifact. Um, and so in, in a sense, even within his Chinese identity, it's kind of a crossover film. I, I think of him as somebody who wants to kind of prove himself in different in different genres you know as, 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 you, as you just mentioned those are several different genres and probably ang lee is the only director who would get me to watch a hulk film because i think it's ang lee it's probably going to be pretty interesting because i think he has those those abiding um tensions that we talked about the the notion of how do you express your individuality especially if your individuality is say in the case of brokeback mountain is seen by some people as kind of outside societal norms you know, how do you express that at the same time still be able to somehow um, uh, live within or uh, w- live within a culture, live within a society? So and I suppose his position as a kind of an insider outsider in American and Chinese society at the same time. I think that probably informs his interest in looking at how do you how do you deal with characters who have to kind of live with their feet in one world uh, and, and another? So if you look at the the way the two char- the two female characters mirror each other in this film, right? You have one character who in a, a kind of aspires to the life of it. They each aspire to the life of another. And I think Ang Lee is really interested in those kinds of tensions. Now, what's interesting is, is uh, towards the latter part of 
Ang Lee's career, his last two movies, he gets very interested in pushing the limits of film technology. So Mm -hmm. I don't think very few people have ever seen Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. But the the interesting thing about this, and I I listened to an entire podcast, podcast episode about this movie that's one of the more interesting things i've listened to because this is a film that he um films in super high frame rate so he he gets into this idea of of 120 frames per Mm -hmm. second um and what's interesting is that's not that's not a film that has a great deal of action or things like that you might think about with like high frame rate, like avatar things like that i mean cameron's doing a little bit 48 frames per second mm-hmm. but it's actually more about sort of the interiority of somebody dealing with ptsd and some of these things um but he but he gets really fascinated by like what is possible with the visual image and the technology of this and if anyone's interested in that um, there's a great uh, episode of the Blank Check podcast uh, where filmmaker J.D. Amato breaks down the technology of high frame rate. And it's not a movie that I'm particularly interested in, except I would love to see it in the way that it was filmed or that it was sort of intended to be seen because it sounds like something you've never seen before, which is uh, also kind of thrilling. So it's interesting that he gets mm. he gets interested in that. And then he makes Gemini Man again, 120 frames per second. Um, neither of those are particularly successful. And I think the high frame rate movement kind of stalls out there because the hope was for, for people like him was that theaters would buy into this enough. These would be successful enough that the they'd have to get the technologies to do this. So um, is there anything in him that in his early career that would lead you to like see him as somebody who would who became kind of obsessed with the technology of filmmaking? Because no. thinking about like, like a, like somebody adapting Jane Austen or making this movie, I don't think about like that that would be a thing. But that actually is the direction his his films have been in the last uh, probably yeah the last five or six years. No, I mean that's that's not something I would have expected. I mean his his early film techniques are certainly um, you know quite quite traditional. I, I guess all, all I guess all I can say is I I could align it with my earlier comments, Sam, about you know being a person who's interested in boundaries. Mm-hmm. And how you push boundaries, and uh, so both thematically, and then you know, once you've done a lot, a number of things thematically, you might as well start doing them technologically. So, absolutely, no, yeah. I, I, you're absolutely right. Uh, so this movie is, as you mentioned, is based on a serialized book from the early '40s. Um, and what's amazing about this is this is book four of a five book series, which is kind mm-hmm. of a stroke of genius. That um, as an American stepping into this world, especially somebody who's not has no history with martial arts storytelling or films or anything like this. I feel like I walk into a world that's so lived in. And the fact that, that you encounter Lee Mubai and Shu Len, you know, not early on in their lives, but it's like, it feels like all of their great adventures have already happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and he's, he's retiring, he's turning in mm-hmm. his, you know, he's turning in his sword and you only hear references to, you know, who these people are. Um, to the point where you like you're almost not sure are we going to get to see them do what they're supposedly great at and when they end up doing it every time especially Lee Mubai shows up it's just like oh he's no matter how amazed you are by what everyone else is doing like he's this like other level type of warrior who comes in and there's something about his his sword fighting with the one hand behind his back too that just Mm -hmm. looks like I am exerting no effort and I am yeah there's something just amazing about about how lived in this world feels, and it well, it, it, it's interesting too that yeah, it begins with his um, 
with his conversation about his retirement, right? And he talks about that meditation. And, you know, it's not that he's come to a place of great enlightenment, it's he's come to a place of great sadness. And it's and so I think that that's to me, um, I, I read a lot of his calmness as um not only it's it's not only that he is um so highly skilled, you know, that he has this great control, but I think there's also this kind of um this kind of detachment that he's achieved as a result of that of that meditation. And it's not it's not that he's fatalistic. He he doesn't want to die, but there's a sense in which he is um he he has a kind of perspective on life in general and his life in particular that maybe he hadn't earlier achieved. I mean, even the fact that he's willing to give up the green destiny, um, you know, means that he's trying to transition into a different into a different phase. And so it's really interesting that, as you said, he you know Angley chooses to locate this at book four. So we have to infer a lot of what's behind him. But what we're really interested in is what does he do now that he's kind of reached this this turning point? Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of, and I'm going to compare this to a movie I haven't seen in a long time. So I'm not. I don't. I mean, in lots of ways, it's very different than this. But 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 it, thinking about it, it reminds me a little bit of at least my memory of a movie like Unforgiven, where mm-hmm. you have this character who mm-hmm. you know is at is at the yep. end and is at this point reflective on things like like Lee Mubai when he looks at the Green Destiny, you know, and he says things like, "Yeah, it's only beautiful because the blood washes away," you yeah. know. But but there you get this sense that the blood has not washed away from Lee Mubai, and it's sort of like this this life has has led him to. Um, to a lot of trouble too and to you know and 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 to this this great sadness and then it's not just the great sadness but there's this sense that he's like there's something that i'm still holding on to that there's something that's pulling me back and you know we realize that that something is the the person across the table from him um and that's going to become the thing that um that becomes a, a major a major movement in this on this film but but you know i i, I it, yeah it, it has that sense of that some westerns do where you have the old the old gunslinger and, and you don't even really get stories other than the fact that everybody sort of knows who they are. And I love the fact that Jen is this reader of these, you know, books of the stories of these people. So when she finds herself fighting with Shu Lin or Li Mu Bai, that she actually is like for the first time in her life is part of the stories that she read. Like I, it's almost like, like I I'm going to defeat you, but also like I, can't believe i am i am facing off against you kind of you know that both of those things at once well i you know I, you've said that about unforgiving which is a good connection sam it, it started it started me thinking about this this kind of common trope both in action films and a number of other films the common trope of the of the character who in a sense is trying to break with his i mostly think of males his past and yet, as you said, kind of keeps getting pulled back in, which is a great image from The Godfather. But I think about in, in, in the Western, I think about Shane. I mean, he's a young guy, but he's trying to hang up his gun. I think about Vertigo, oddly enough. Uh, Jimmy Stewart's trying to give up his career as a detective, and he gets pulled back in. And then I think about David Cronenberg's History of Violence with Viggo Mortensen. You know, and, he, and it seems like no matter what you do. And the reason I bring all those up is because the other part of the trope, which even I don't know if if you haven't seen this film if before if you would have guessed this, but I just know that Lee Mubai is doomed. Mm-hmm. I, I I just I just know that if he's going to get pulled back in, he's he's going to die. 
Um, and you don't know how, because you know, nobody's going to defeat him in swordplay. So you don't know how he's going to die, but you, you know, that when people try to hang up the sword and then they take it up again, it never ends well. And so there's a sense of fate that hangs over him the whole time. And I don't know if that was because I had seen the film before and knew it was going to happen to him or whether it was just internal to the film, but the whole time I watch him, I get, I, I, I had, I have this sense of uh, an elegiac sense as you look at him that he is you know he's going to be on his way out soon well and part of that is the performance too like like i mean one of the things we should say is this movie is there's lots of there are great moments of people talking with each other but even when they're talking with each other it's about the things they're not saying as they talk it's about the looks that they give each other um the this film has a lot of realizations coming across people's faces and then they don't say anything about it but we're supposed to read the realizations that they're coming to mm-hmm. um i mean you know, i love you know for the first probably two-thirds of this movie we have multiple scenes of shulen and limu bai talking and even talking about themselves and their what would be their relationship and it's like it's like watching high schoolers like who are like like they just they don't know how to talk about it and it's like how can these people who can do all of these things they can't have a conversation about their feelings at all <laughs> and i love i love um uh what is oh certe when 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 he's talking with about like like you know how even even great heroes you know are idiots sometimes and it's like it's great because he calls it out right away and you know he's like in case you think you're wrong viewer about what you're reading between these people you're not these people just they're incapable you know and even a part of it is they're this they were brought up according to a particular code a particular lifestyle particular expectations they they've they've already bought into the fact that the love between them is impossible, even though any of us watching are like, you're both right there. It is possible. But, but for them, it is, it is impossible. And that is so um, kind of hard and wonderful to watch as a viewer. And it's, and, and, and it's another trope that you can find in star Wars as well. And a number of other films, right? These, these two folks, you know, can't, can't these two kids see that they're supposed to be, you know, t- together with, together with each other. Yeah. So I love the uh, how we get this this dual introduction of Jen. So first we meet Jen, sort of the princess, right? The daughter of of Governor Yu, and we see her admiring the sword and admiring Shu Len. You know that that there's this sense of like you are you are the thing that I wish I could be, um, and uh, you know she talks about how it must be exciting to be a fighter and be totally mm-hmm. free. And then Shu Len is, says, "Well, you know, we have rules too: friendship, truth, integrity. Mm-hmm. Without rules, we wouldn't uh, survive long." And there is this sense that 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 those rules are also the are also her prison. You know, so like you said, that like they both kind of desire something about what the other what the other person has. Um, so we meet Jen there, and then we mm-hmm. get the great introduction of Jen the thief. And what I love about, and this movie has a lot of um, uh, great sound design because in all the fights, right, you're hearing all of this stuff, but this movie is also great in its silences. So when, when we first encounter Jen, the thief, it's just this like flash in the background across the rooftops. Um, And then when she goes in to steal the sword, it's, it's amazing how 
it's the sound just disappears, you know, like, like because she's able to move in a way where no sound comes out and it, and then the movie just becomes deeply quiet. And then what's great is right after that, we get this fight scene with the big pounding drums that drive it. So you move from utter silence to like this thrilling. I mean, it is, it is, it is telling your heart what to, those drums are telling your heart what to do as you watch that scene. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, what I love is the the attempt by Shulen and Limu Bai to kind of try to whether they already know it's Jen or not, like the, the little ways that they that they're they they sort of do their investigation. So there's that great calligraphy scene where mm. you know, which is which is as beautiful as the sword play. And apparently the actress um who played Jen, like that was all that also took her a very long time to learn how to do that perfectly. But but like like um that we see Shulen track that. And then later on when they're having tea and she, you know, she flips the oh, cup over and there's yes. like, just to get that, like, I mean, again, it's perfectly silent, her catching that cup. And it's like this, you know, all these little tests to, to sort of sort of figure out who, um, figure out who she is. Yeah. yeah. And it, yeah. And that, and that's just part, that's just part of the cat and mouse, right? Because they, they both know what's going on long before it's ever actually said out, out loud. And I mean, I, yeah, and I want to go back to what you're saying too about um, Shulin kind of schooling her in the idea that there's rules because that's, I mean, Jen has, Jen, Jen has learned her craft by reading the manual. So she is following the rules. And yet at the same time, she resists the, the, the discipline of, of the, of the, of the school, right? She calls it a whorehouse. And so there's, she's, She's one, she's so interesting because she's so she's so deeply conflicted because she wants a kind of freedom outside the rules of her patriarchy, but she also doesn't exactly want the rules of the discipline that she's learned. And so I think, well, I don't want to get to the end of the film quite yet, but I think that that's really an important element about her character that it really she faces two binary choices, neither of which is really the right one for her. And so that's that's the one ways in which she and Shulin are actually more different than I think either of them either of them realize. I think Shulin sees choices through a much more binary uh, as a much more binary opposition. And Jen ultimately wants something that she can't have because it doesn't exist in this world. And what I love about the, the the sort of dual introductions of Jen the Princess and Jen the Thief is um, what this movie ends up doing with characters in terms of like, for one thing, whose story is this? Because it starts yeah. off and you feel like, well, this is definitely the story of Shulen and Lee Mubai. And then for a while, it's like, actually, this is Jen's story. And then later on, you, you come back and say, well, actually, maybe it is about... <laughs> you know, Lee Mubai and, and Shulen. And then then like, like it, Jen becomes this different character. I mean, she starts almost as you're like, well, is she actually going to ultimately be the villain of this story? Especially when she shows herself to be beyond her master, Jade Fox, in terms of, you know, what she's capable of. Um, But then you, but then it, it ends up, as you point out, like this ends up being story more, a story more about like different people vying for her, for her future, right? There's lots of people who have designs on her and her potential and her abilities and um and what they want for her, whether it's her parents, whether it's Jade Fox, sort of her adopted her adopted mother, or 
her other adoptive potential adoptive parents of Lee Mubai and Shulen or Lo has designs on her life too. And then there's Jen who talks about freedom. So she becomes this very complex character. The thing I really love, and this makes me think about almost Miyazaki a little bit, the idea that even Jade Fox, who is the like the actual like villain villain of this movie her motivations like 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 you could see that you could read this story through her point of view and she is she's a character who is very much like um consistently looked down upon and deceived i mean even by limu bai's master right that's that's the original thing is she wanted to be part of the wudan school but because she's a woman she was she wasn't allowed right she said like yeah he would sleep with me but he wouldn't train me he wouldn't teach me um and then we find out that Jen has also just sort of used her as a as a pathway to get the to get the manual. So even the villain is somebody where you're like, well, I actually have sympathy towards her, even though I see her do like there are people who do villainous things, but they're not exactly strictly speaking absolute villains. Yeah, it's one it's one of the ways in which, and I, I probably should use this label cautiously, but it's one of the ways in which it's, it is a feminist film. It's one of the, you know the the three you you could look at this film as really the story of the of the three main women um and you know one of the things i i have to confess this or i hate to confess this but i when you said you know whose story is this um i i totally forgotten about like the the middle of the film all all, all, all the stuff with with jen and low um but what's important is you know that's they're one of the reasons why the film is called crouching tiger hidden dragon because the last character in Lo's name means a uh, little tiger, and the last character in Jen Jen's name means Jade Dragon. So they are the crouching tiger uh, and and the hidden dragon. Um, at the same time, the the phrase crouching tiger hidden dragon literally means behind the rock in the dark probably hides a tiger, and the coiling giant re- resembles a crouching dragon. Uh, and then and then the other thing it means the idiomatic phrase means is it refers to um passion and uh emotion secret desires that lie beneath the surface of polite society and civil behavior so it's a very it's a very interesting title because it does point to the centrality of jen and lowe's story but it also obviously points to the tension in uh the story of uh lucian and uh, and uh and um and uh charlie on fat's character so yeah and, and so as you pointed out like i also forget that this movie becomes a different movie, you know, pretty deep into the film. We get a flashback that is so long that you almost forget the other movie you're watching. And you're like, I guess this is what we're watching now. You know, the, the, the story of, of, um, of Jen getting uh, abducted sort of like, it's, yeah. it's hard to describe like, well, what is the nature? I mean, she, she gets the, the comb is stolen and she goes after it. I mean, I say abducted because there is a point where she's tied up in the cave, so that feels like an abduction. But but there but there is this this sense that 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 she is both drawn to that, and they're they are drawn to each other. Um, but there is the interesting thing about it is there is also this sense that although they are together and they are free, that Jen is not free, right? Like that there is the sense that her parents. Um, you know, the, the people her parents have sent out are circling them. So the point that, that Jen leaves at leaves that situation, even though everything she's saying is that 
the one thing she doesn't want is to leave that this is where she wants to be that the, I, I sort of love that notion that she reaches a point where she leaves you know maybe to save low because if the you know yeah. if, if, if they if they find him you know his he's done with um but there is this sense that those pulls uh those pulls against her freedom are there even when she is seemingly as free as she could possibly be I, I think it's interesting that the comb kind of prefigures green destiny right the comb and and the scene in the carriage before low and his men attack you know she's playing with the comb and she's told you know just put it away before you break it so there's a sense that the comb has a kind of identity for her it also happens to be green as well uh but so it's the idea that you know so so we've seen her fixate on a particular object as necessary to her identity so it kind of sets up the whole theft and use of the green destiny afterwards we also in this get the um the two kind of mythological stories right we get this the, we get we get lowe's story of chasing after fall after shooting stars mm-hmm. um, which is sort of this this beautiful imagery of childhood you know creating the person that he becomes and then we get the story of you know jumping off of wudan mountain mm-hmm. you know and the idea that the faithful heart uh makes wishes come true mm-hmm. which uh i mean the first time i saw it i like i'm like oh that's an interesting story i didn't think much of it and then i realized at the end oh <laughs> there we are at the top of of, of wudan mountain um but when Lo comes to her, you know, when she leaves, she basically says, you know, come for me, uh, come back for me. And when he does, she rejects him um, as the sort of wedding is impending. Um, and then we get the the this other like little episode of uh, Jen, the um, uh, the the uh, what does she call herself? The invincible go- sword goddess, <laughs> you know, which is just like her saying her her like claiming her freedom in a different kind of way Mm -hmm. um and it's almost like she's testing the full extent of her ability um and and saying like you know i have i have faced off against these other people but you know against um shulen and limu bai but now i'm going to create this other character she you know she dresses like a boy Mm -hmm. um but that seems to go away quickly when she refers herself as the sword goddess um but she's just like she even says you know that that limu bai is her defeated foe and um you know and she basically bests an entire two-story restaurant of people trying to you know and then destroys that space um which is just a thrilling part but it's also sort of again if we're talking about the fight scenes being about expressing things you know this is this is about expressing this thing that had been pent up in her you know maybe her kind of uh dreams of what she thinks she wants to be but you know it's it's interesting sam that one of the reviews i read pointed out that um because she hasn't been fully trained she actually doesn't one of the, one of the key rules she doesn't understand is that rather than insulting people when they introduce themselves the polite thing is to have an exchange of names that's mm-hmm. your name this is my name and it's not clear whether she doesn't do that because she refuses to accept that convention or whether because she's really completely ignorant of it so I think one of the things that happens is that there's a further demonstration that she cannot fit into any world. I mean that that's that that's the pro- that, I mean to me that's her fundamental uh dilemma. She can't fit into the society into which she's supposed to be and I think she rejects Lowe probably for two reasons. One is to protect him. 
Um, but the other is because she realizes what's the difference between being married to this guy that my father wants me to marry for political reasons and being married to Lowe. Even if I love Lowe, what's 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 the difference? Because either way, I am identified as the spouse or the wife, and I'm not my own person. And yet when she tries to be her own person in a way, uh, she and this is very important for Chinese society in particular, she has no you you can't exist as a as as a complete individual in that society. Maybe you can't in any society, but there has to be some order into which you fit. And she is rejecting any of those orders. Yeah, I, I would I would say that I don't think it's ignorance. I think it's choice because she has not lived in that world, but she has studied that world. I'm sure in the books that she reads about it, mm-hmm. all the conventions, she's somebody who knows about conventions. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. she even says as she's fighting, she's like, you know, I am tomorrow I'm going to, you know, uh, kick Wudan Mountain itself into the, you know, into the ground or something like like. So, mm-hmm. so there's a sense that that she is tearing up the foundations of the idea of rules and, mm-hmm. you know, and any of these mm-hmm. things. So I think I think she's going out of her way to say, I am going to intentionally insult anything. I mean, there's things she doesn't know. Like she doesn't know that um, when they bring up Limu Bai's master, she doesn't know who that person is. And she just sort of, but, but I think she would, would have been happy to insult him anyhow. I think there is this idea that like, this is what it, like, what if I just tried to tear it all down to the ground, but also knowing like, like, as you said, you can't really do that, you know, so like, like that doesn't, that doesn't actually get you, um, get you anywhere. And, and it's also like, is, is rejection a choice? Like, is that, is that, or is that just choosing not, but it's not choosing something. It's only choosing rejection. Um, you know, because I think there, there's this, the interesting line at the very end, um, when, uh, Shulen tells her, you know, whatever you choose, be true to yourself. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, is rejection being true to yourself or is it just a reaction against all these people want these different things for me? I'm just going to burn it to the ground. Well, then what, you know, <laughs> you know oh, Sam, all that makes me realize why Ang Lee made the Hulk. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So then we go. Okay, so then we get the, the, the two, the two battles, you know, one with Shulen and one with Limu Bai. The you talked about in the sort of the Wudan headquarters, or I don't know where they are actually. In when he says, you know, go back to headquarters, mm-hmm. and that you know, and there's that the place where they have the fight with with all the different weapons, and then that leads to the treetop battle. So this is this is her basically battling with her again, like another set of potential parents, um, you know, who are. And it, it's even like they're even approaching her in different ways. You know, I, um, I was listening to a podcast with uh, film critic David Ehrlich, and he compared this movie to Lady Bird. And he's like, you know, oh, this is yeah. about this is about a young woman coming of age, trying to figure herself out and her mm. relationship with her parents. And it's like each parent sort of has a different approach to like, how do I interact with you? Because if you think about the two fights that she has, you know, in the in the room with all the weapons and then on the tops of the bamboo trees, like those are very different, even approaches to, you know, who is, who is Jen and how, how do you approach her? How do you try to, how do you try to teach her something? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And I just have to say that, that those two might be the two most in a movie filled with thrilling action sequences. Those two are probably the best. I mean, when, when you get to the, the, the bamboo trees and it's like, 
it's almost not even a fight anymore. Like they're, they're Mm -hmm. just sort of swinging and it's about sort of balance and stillness, which is the thing that he tells her earlier. It's like, I can teach you how to use the green destiny, but first you have to learn stillness. And there is this sense of like balance in the trees and stillness. Yeah. And it's like those two scenes give you the full gamut because you have one that's pastoral and slow and ballet like, and the other one is in interior. It's uh, every single weapon that Shulin can come up with, she uses. So it's like, yeah, you get the full, the full panoply. And, you know, you said earlier, Sam, I want to touch back on this too, that, you know, one of the problems you often have with these fight scenes is that is they're boring. And I mean, I, I was just transfixed and, I mean, I, I I I couldn't get over the choreography of these scenes and the fact that these are not stunt doubles. I mean, these are the actors actually doing this. It's just, yeah, to me, it's just astonishing to watch. Well, what's interesting about the first of those battles is that Shulen wins the battle. Like, yeah, like even does. though, yeah, you know, even though uh, uh, Jen cuts her and fl- and 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 flies away when when. Um, uh, when Limu Bai shows up, like like she has like uh, Lee, uh Shulen has won, and mm-hmm. she has the blade at her throat, and because yep. she even says later, like I couldn't, I couldn't do it, I couldn't bring myself yeah. to to finish her. Um, and then that the other woman's like, well, Limu Bai will do it. <laughs> actually, no, because because what we what we learn about Limu Bai, and this is something he had said earlier, is that what he actually what he wants is a student. You know, he wants, mm-hmm. he wants to teach somebody. He wants to himself be somebody's mentor and master in terms of, you know, teaching this and, and somebody who's worthy of, of, of Wudan, um, which is kind of interesting because that, that also is the moment where he's also seeing another part of what, what might life look like after I give up the sword myself, you know, it's like, well, well, actually maybe it is in, in teaching this other person and helping them, to you know experience their own uh becoming you know in a sense well and that's another way which jen just can't fit in jen will not literally be mastered she mm-hmm. won't she won't be mastered in a marital relationship she won't be mastered in a martial relationship and so you know what what what's expressed is that the the master needs the disciple and the disciple needs the master and if that's not if that's not the case then something's out of balance Right, right. So then from there, we get this great double ending, right? So, you know, we talked about whose movie is this when that cave, you start to think, okay, ultimately, yep, this is about Shulen and Limu Bai, uh, as he defeats Jade Fox and avenges his his master. But also, you know, you talked about him being doomed, right? There's the, the one needle, the one mm-hmm. poison needle in his neck. And, you know, poison is kind of... um well, there's, there's two meanings here, right? Like one of them is that it is sort of like this cowardly approach in this world of like, you know, of, you know, one-on-one duels and things like this, right? To use poison is a is, is viewed as, as this sort of cowardly approach. But we also hear Jade Fox define poison in a different mm-hmm. way. Poison is a deceitful eight-year-old girl, you know, that, that she, so, so again, she's like, she's pointing out, I too have been poisoned. I too have been, I tried to honestly, honestly teach teach her and she deceived me right she didn't she didn't tell me what she could see and what she knew um so so there is this the this sense that again i think i love how complex jade fox is as a character well and what's great about jade fox is that she's actually she's the center of a kind of a double triangle Mm -hmm. 
right? Because because you know she she's she's the she's the center in the relationship between uh, Li Mubai and Shu Lin, and she's central in the relationship between uh, Jen and Lo. So I think you could argue that there's three that there's there's three stories here, right? Sure. Um, and 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 without her, there really is no story at all. Absolutely, a- a- absolutely. And and then we get this, the you know the the final scene of Limu Bai and Shulen and he talks about um you know if it if 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 our introduction to him is about like not finding meaning in enlightenment right finding only sadness and sorrow um and silence he says to her you know I'd rather I'd rather be a ghost drifting by your side a condemned soul than enter mm-hmm. heaven without you so there is this sense that that he has found the thing that that where, where he is going to find a kind of peace, even if that peace is not the peace that he's been taught he's supposed to have mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and see. So that feels like the ending, but then we get yet another ending and then we're, then we're led back to, well, maybe this is, Jen, you know, maybe this is Jen's story. Uh, do you want to talk about the, the, the final scene and in, in your reading of the final scene with Jen and Lowe? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess what I've been trying to set up with that final scene, Sam, is the idea that Jen is in, um an untenable position that because she wants things that you cannot have uh at the same time you can't both be free and bound you can't both be a uh an individual following your own code and yet be part of some kind of a social order so she loves low but she can't give up for him what she feels she would need to give up so um, somebody compares compares what happens at the end to uh, Thelma and Louise driving off the the cliff. Um, I, I I don't read it quite that way. I think Thelma and Louise drive off the cliff because they've literally come to a dead end. There's no way they can continue. I think she leaps because, and this is the one positive thing about her leap. She leaps because she believes the legend, and she really believes if she leaps that somehow a miracle will happen. Um, and you and I sometimes have talked about these films. You sometimes have said, "Well, what do you think happens next?" Right? And this, this, this—that's a great film to ask this question about. What happens next? Does a miracle happen? Is, is she somehow able to be with with Low at the same time? I don't know. But I think she has to leap because it, it's a profoundly spiritual expression of both frustration and transcendence, and the idea, and and and, and that, that her. Hoping to test or both reveal the purity of her heart. Uh, and she loves Lowe, but she doesn't know how to live in a world with Lowe and still be herself. Well, and what I love about that ending is the story is whoever jumps off that, right? Mm-hmm. Their, the wishes of their heart will be granted. Right. So she turns to him and asks him, what is your wish? Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, to be in the desert again together. Mm-hmm. that's his wish he doesn't jump off she jumps off and we don't get to hear her express mm-hmm. her mm-hmm. wish now right. i think i think in the last scene with shulen where she's like whatever you choose you know uh be true to yourself yeah or, or whatever she says like um that i think she's been thinking about that and she's been thinking about like what is it that i want and i don't think we get to see what she what she what her wish actually is but watching her not fall the way a human body would fall but float the way the legend says leads mm. you to believe maybe her wish will come true but we don't necessarily get to see what that wish is yeah exactly yeah, yeah. um anything else you want to talk about with this film well just to, just two more things one of them kind of thematic and the other or plot driven the other just arts comment on the production of the film um 
you know, we, we talked earlier a little bit about how Ang Lee is adopting this, this genre and it's kind of making a martial arts film of this type is kind of what, um, just, just like a, a lot of American directors have to direct a Western. It's like, you know, one of the things you do, but, but there's all these narrative tropes. The master's death must be avenged. The stolen book of martial arts secrets are recovered. Skillful student lacks maturity. Rogue villain who tries to operate outside the strict conventions of the school. I mean, those are actually not unique tropes to Ang Lee or to this film, but what's interesting is what, what he does with them. Um, the other thing I want to mention, it's, it's, it's a matter of how the film was actually created. A um, couple of interesting things about it. One is that um, James Seamus, who uh, has been Ang Lee's collaborator since the beginning of his career, he originally wrote the script. He, wrote, he writes the script in English, and then they give it to some, Chi to some Chinese uh, authors. Uh, they rewrite it into Chinese and then it gets translated back into English, sent back to James Seamus, and then he rewrites it, and then it gets translated back in, into Chinese. So it's a really interesting kind of multicultural uh, collaboration. And the other element of, of multicultural is that this is, a, this is a film in which the language, of course, is Mandarin, because that's the appropriate language for the genre. Um, but actually, only one of the four main actors, Jen, spoke fluent Mandarin. Uh, Lo speaks Mandarin with a Taiwanese accent. Uh, Chao Yun Fat uh, speaks Cantonese. And Michelle Yeoh is from Malaysia and grew up in an English-speaking household. So some of the reception of the film, and especially in mainland China, uh, did revolve around a little disdain for the fact that these characters don't speak perfect Mandarin uh, Chinese. Yeah, apparently, if you're if you're fluent in Mandarin, the film sounds very funny because yeah. it's like it's like people have just wildly different accents one other thing that you didn't mention about the translation is when you watch this film uh with english subtitles those english subtitles were written by ang lee mm -hmm. so he went through because he wanted to make sure when it when american audiences or english language audiences saw this mm -hmm. that like that that what he wanted conveyed came through so i don't know how often directors write their own subtitles but he went but he made it a point to that that you're actually reading ang lee's Mm -hmm. translation of you know of of what we want or what he wants to say last thing i want to say about this um i i started this by saying i went to see this because my wife said it was like watching star wars if you hadn't seen it before this movie was wildly successful so this makes over 200 million dollars uh domestically in the u.s mm -hmm. and i was thinking about this because this comes out in the year 2000 uh in 1999 was when the first star wars prequel came out and for people my age who were born into a, like I was born, I think a week after the original Star Wars came out. So I was born into a world where this was the stories that I grew up with. Um, we waited for a decade and a half to get another Star Wars movie. And we got one in across the board. We're fairly disappointed with it and didn't <laughs> like it. Um, and then I think part of why this is so successful is for people like me, this is actually what we wanted. It's mm. not that we wanted more Star Wars. We were chasing the feeling of, I want that, that, that kind of thing again. And I think we saw something like this and we're like this, I mean, there, you could draw lots of sim narrative similarities between that as well. Um, but it's like, this is exactly what it felt like to encounter something that, you know, was a world you totally didn't know was this lived in world that 
the sort of, you know, kind of family issue type of this has different family issues, but you know, the kind, this kind of mythology and it didn't matter to someone like me, whether this was completely new or drawing on an ancient tradition, it's just like, it was, it was thrilling to see in that kind of way. So I wonder how much of the success of this is tied to the fact that we thought we wanted another star Wars movie when in reality, what we wanted was that feeling that this movie provides. Yeah, that's that. Uh, that's great, Sam. And it's it's the first uh, foreign film to win Best Picture. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Well, this didn't win Best Picture, didn't it? No, no, no. This was the. I I'm think, sorry, it was uh, nominated. It was yes, nominated. It was nominated. It was yep. nominated. That's right. Yeah, for yep. it was first one nominated for Best Picture, I believe. Yes. Yep. To say, yeah. Yep. yep. Uh, all right. Well, so what do you have for us? Uh, we're going to take a break next week because we're on spring break. Uh, so in two weeks, what do you have for us? Well, you know, I've been thinking about for a while that you know. There's been so much talk going on about AI and chatbot and all that. I think it'd be a good idea to revisit the 2013 film Her and uh, think a little bit about how kind of prescient that film was in thinking about what it might mean to have AI in our lives. Um, Plus, I think it's a great Joaquin Phoenix performance. So. Yeah, I, I'm very. I've never seen this movie. I remember when okay. this came out, um, but this is something I haven't seen. So I'm very excited to watch this. Uh, that sounds great, Barrett. Thank you so much for uh, recommending this film and for having this conversation. If you haven't seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, we didn't ruin anything by talking about it. <laughs> it is, it's, it's just a thrill to watch. So, um, so I highly recommend uh, going and watching this film. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back in two weeks to talk about her in the video store. <laughs> <laughs>